This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. What can I say about Louisiana? It's one of the handful of states I've actually been to in my life. I was very young, and all I remember was a very muddy-looking river. Earlier this year, I met someone from New Orleans. Nice guy. The southern hospitality is definitely real. Southerners are my people. I'm gonna warn you up front, though. I don't speak a word of French. These last names are gonna fucking kill me. (laughs) I'm very tempted to cut some King of the Hill clips in here because there's a whole episode about Hank winning a trip to a Saints game, and they meet Bill's family, and it's fucking gold. Louisiana's history with the death penalty dates all the way back to 1722, before the U.S. was even a thing. Up until 1859, the vast majority of people executed were slaves. Crimes that could win you a date with the rope included the usual things. Murder, rape, treason, desertion, slave revolt, and my personal favorite, counterfeiting. Before hanging became their go-to method, Louisiana would execute prisoners in other ways, like shooting and breaking on the wheel. Yep, that was a thing here. The most interesting execution method I can find is simply listed as other, so I guess use your imagination. Electrocution wouldn't become an option until 1941. Condemned prisoners would fry until 1993 when lethal injection was introduced, as it is in most states. They do still have the death penalty, but haven't actually executed anyone since 2010. There are currently 61 men and one woman on death row here. So grab a big-ass bowl of gumbo and some Mardi Gras beads. We're heading down to the bayou. Oh ma mauvaise étoile. God help me with these fucking French names. Remember back in the day when it was drilled into our heads that we shouldn't meet people off the internet because they could be dangerous? Well, I never listened to that. I ended up marrying one of these internet creatures, actually. My best friend was a friend of a friend that I met on the internet. Maybe the early 2000s was different, though. Maybe back then, people actually needed to be careful. Jennifer Cocky was a single mother living in Louisiana. That name isn't even French, so if I fucked it up, that's entirely my bad. She met a man online named Gerald Bordelone and married him a year later. They'd end up moving to Mississippi to be near Bordelone's family. I'm not exactly sure what the fuck this woman was thinking. Bordelone was an average child. Born in 1962, he grew up in Baton Rouge and had an IQ in the normal range. Despite this, he was considered impaired and placed into resource class. The principal of his school advised his mother to take him out altogether for some reason. Doctors who examined Bordelone said that he might be suffering from antisocial personality disorder and sexual sadism disorder. When they met, Bordelone was out on parole. His crimes? You'll never guess. Forcible rape and get this. Aggravated crime against nature. What the fuck even is that? He'd been given a 20-year sentence for this in 1992, but was paroled after just 10 years. 
This was after pleading guilty to sexual battery in 1982 and serving 10 years in prison for it. The man clearly has some issues, but Jennifer either didn't know or didn't care. One of the conditions of Bordelon's parole was that he not have contact with minors. For whatever reason, this was altered to say that he could have unsupervised contact with minors so long as the parent knew of his sex crimes. This marriage didn't last long. Any guesses as to why? I'll give you a hint. Bordelon was a fucking creep. He molested two of Jennifer's daughters. Jennifer did call the cops, and Bordelon was ordered to leave the property. After this incident, Jennifer made a smart move by packing up and going back to Louisiana with her kids. She rented a trailer in Denham Springs. Despite all that had happened, she kept contact with Bordelon and had him help with repairs to the trailer. Red flag number one was the multiple convictions for sex crimes. Red flag number two was meeting the motherfucker on the internet. That's obviously a joke. And the final red flag, brighter and more glaring than anything else, was the fact that this sick fuck touched her kids. But Jennifer was apparently colorblind. On November 15th, 2002, Jennifer's 12-year-old daughter, Courtney, was home alone. Jennifer's brother had been in a serious car accident and she'd gone to be with him while he was in the hospital. I know we live in a different time now, but this was back in an era when leaving your kids by themselves wasn't as frowned upon as it is now. This meme keeps popping up in my corner of the internet. It says something like, you grew up with babysitters, I grew up with, don't open the door for anybody. I was a child of this era. No babysitters to be found. Hell, me and my brother were almost always tasked with babysitting our two younger brothers when we were like 12. Parents of the early 2000s did not give a fuck. Parents now won't walk to the mailbox without a babysitter. Gerald Bordelone and other sick bastards like him are probably why that's the case. Bordelone came to the trailer that night and kidnapped Courtney at knife point. He told her if she screamed or hollered or tried to get away, he'd kill her. Bordelon drove from Baton Rouge to Mississippi, forcing Courtney to perform oral sex on him and remove her underwear so he could molest her. They left Mississippi around 9 a.m. and went back to Baton Rouge. Near the banks of the... I'm, I'm gonna fuck this one up. Amite River? Courtney asked him where they were going. Bordelon told her to the river. Courtney's haunting last words were, Why do you like the river? Before Bordelon pushed her down and started strangling her. She fought like hell, even biting his thumb so hard that she drew blood. After Courtney died, Bordelon moved her body into the woods and hid her in the underbrush. She wouldn't be found until November 26th. After he left the scene, Bordelon drove to his sister's house so he could wash his clothes. When Jennifer got home from the hospital and realized Courtney was gone, she immediately called the police. The initial suspicion was that Courtney might have run away. A serial killer named Derek Todd Lee was active in the area at the time, so police became concerned that she may have become one of his victims. This theory was later dismissed as they had a much more likely suspect, Gerald Bordelon. He was placed under surveillance and brought in for questioning. 
He later confessed to his crimes and led police to her body. Bordelon was charged with second-degree kidnapping and first-degree murder and found guilty on June 29, 2006. Now, I've never been involved in a murder trial, but why the fuck does it take almost four years to convict a man of a crime he admitted to? The courts like to drag everything out, but that seems a bit excessive in a case where he confessed and took them to the body. Nevertheless, this conviction landed him a death sentence. After learning his fate, Bordelone waived his right to appeal the sentence and asked that the execution be carried out. He admitted in court that if he was ever given the opportunity to commit a crime similar to that again, he would. Looking at those past convictions, you know, he probably ain't lying about that. Gerald James Bordelone was executed by lethal injection on January 7, 2010. No executions have taken place in Louisiana since. On this particular day, two other men met their maker, one in Ohio and one in Texas. A day like this, where three or more people are executed on the same day, has not occurred in the U.S. since. Bordelone showed remorse in the end. I think that's part of why he accepted a death sentence rather than fighting to get life in prison. He knew what he did was wrong. He was a sick puppy. But he is no more. Bordelon's last words were directed at Courtney's family. I'm sorry, I don't know if that brings any closure or peace. It should have never happened, but it did, and I'm sorry. Through tears, he continued, I'd like to apologize to my family and tell them that I love them. His last meal was, bear with me, fried sacale, crawfish étouffée, cookies, and a peanut butter and apple jelly sandwich. I honestly wouldn't expect anything else in Louisiana. But what about Jennifer Cocky? Did she royally screw up by allowing this dangerous man to be around her kids? Some states are, how do I put this lightly, fucking stupid. Mississippi isn't though. They charged her with child abuse. She was convicted and given a five-year suspended prison sentence and five years probation. The lesson here is, the safety of your kids is more important than getting dick from a convicted sex offender. I busted out of the gate with a really fucked up one. I apologize for that. This next one is equally disgusting, but in a much different way. There's no pedophilia in this one but we're running with the taking advantage of the helpless theme. The timeline leading up to the crime is very confusing, so I will do my best to keep it concise. Timothy Baldwin, his wife Rita, and their seven kids, Jesus fucking Christ, use a condom, were living in West Monroe, Louisiana until 1977. A man by the name of William Jones also lived with them for a time. One of their neighbors was an elderly woman named Mary Peters. She was godmother to their youngest son. Most of the Baldwin family would later move from Louisiana to Ohio, with the exception of their oldest daughter, Michelle, and one of their sons. Timothy and William Jones were pretty good friends, it seems. They worked together installing aluminum siding. That's kind of weird. 
my dad and my uncle did that for a while. Anyway, while in Ohio, a woman named Marilyn Hampton and her three daughters moved in with the family. Baldwin ended up leaving his wife and running off, I'm assuming back to Louisiana, but that's unclear. The point is, Rita was left to raise the younger kids by herself. This led to some financial difficulties. She was charged with writing bad checks, and her four youngest children were sent back to Louisiana to live with their sister. Where was Baldwin during all this? Oh, you know, just living the dream. Raising hell and running around Louisiana in a rented van with his new girlfriend, Marilyn Hampton, her three kids, and William Jones. On the night of April 4th, 1978, Baldwin and Hampton left Jones with the kids at a cabin near Jackson, Mississippi, while they went to visit Baldwin's daughter, Michelle, in Louisiana. They left around 8 p.m. Shortly after, a van matching the description of the one they were driving was seen outside the home of 85-year-old Mary Peters. A man and woman were seen leaving her house between 10 and 11 that night. The next day, a Meals on Wheels employee brought Mary some lunch. He found her lying on the kitchen floor, having been severely beaten. She was incoherent and barely conscious, but she was still alive. Despite her condition, she attempted to defend herself against the police officers and EMTs who were there to help her. She was rushed to the hospital a little after noon that day. Doctors discovered that her jawbone and left cheekbone were completely shattered. She had extensive brain damage. It was so bad that she couldn't communicate and was basically just saying a bunch of nonsense. Mary died of her injuries the next day. An autopsy labeled her cause of death as massive cerebral hemorrhage and swelling, secondary to external head injuries. The suspects were very easy to locate. As I mentioned before, the black van with a man and a woman in it was seen outside Mary's house the night before she was found. Baldwin and Hampton were found in El Dorado, Arkansas, where they signed consent forms for the police to search their van and motel room. During this search, two blue bank bags were found, which contained savings bonds and certificates of deposit payable to Mary. William Jones, though not present for the murder, was also questioned by police. He led them to a canal near West Monroe, Louisiana, where a safe belonging to Mary was discovered. Baldwin's prints were found all over Mary's house. It was clear that he was responsible for her death. Money is often the motivation behind heinous crimes. Why these two chose to target a helpless old woman is a question I can't answer. Doesn't even seem like they got very much out of it. Because they were too pathetic to go out and work like normal people, an 85-year-old blind woman was beaten to death with a stool, a skillet, a telephone, and a handful of other things. Murder, very rarely, can be justified. This particular crime cannot. No sane, level-headed person beats an elderly blind woman to death for a little bit of cash. Especially not a woman so close to their family. What the fuck? Baldwin tried to go the not-guilty-by-reason-of-insanity route. This was partially based on the fact that he was drunk on the night of the murder. He was a heavy drinker. Like I've said many times already, I was a heavy drinker. Never fucking killed an old lady or robbed anyone. 
the worst I've done is piss my pants and wake up next to a stranger. Not in the same night, thankfully. I guess the 2% of Irish blood I have gives me an advantage when it comes to alcoholism. In addition to this claim of drunken insanity, Baldwin tried stating that he'd visited Mary the night she was attacked, but that he hadn't killed her. It's almost plausible. Almost. She was basically family. But that timing is just too coincidental. Not to mention all the stolen items they found in his possession. The main witness in the case was Marilyn Hampton, who the prosecution had claimed waited in the car during the murder. The jury wasn't buying any excuses Baldwin threw at them. He was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. Marilyn Hampton was also charged with first-degree murder and given a life sentence. After just seven years, she was released. I looked into her a little bit more and found out that she passed away on August 24, 2023. Her obituary states that she was a loving grandmother who had a special connection with animals. Nothing in there about her involvement in the murder, but I guess that's not something her family wants to remember. I hope that she was able to get her shit together after this mess and leave a positive mark on the world in some way. William Odell Jones wasn't charged with anything that I can find. Maybe because he helped the police find the safe? I'm not sure. Maybe he didn't actually do anything wrong and only got sucked into it because his friends were involved. Either way, I also found an obituary for a William Odell Jones Jr. in Florida. I'm not 100% sure it's the same guy, but it does talk about his time in Louisiana, so maybe it is. Timothy George Baldwin was executed by electrocution on September 10, 1984. According to victimsofthestate.org, the many people in the courtroom actually used racially derogatory language during the trial. A former sheriff's deputy also apparently swore in a statement that white officers had beaten and tortured Baldwin into confessing. There was also a receipt from the motel in Arkansas that proved he wasn't in Louisiana at the time of the murder. Take all of that with a couple spoonfuls of salt, though. This is coming from an anti-death penalty website. Cars exist, and it's about an hour and 15 minutes from El Dorado to West Monroe. Baldwin's last words were, I do have to tell society I am very disgusted with them. Why can't society admit something like this? I know it hurts politically or whatever. I wasn't sure whether I was going to be able to make a statement because, you know, I'm going to have to atone for what I did in my life. And I've pulled some escapades. We're all going to have to go there too. You are all the ones who are going to have to live with yourselves. This was, you know, in reference to his execution. His last meal was bacon and tomato sandwiches. Violence breeds violence. Maybe I'll put that on a shirt and sell it to the three of you who are currently listening. You've heard me say it too many times by now. John Brogdon, I'm going Utah accent with this one even if it's Louisiana, fucking fight me, I'm all out of Cajun seasoning, had a rough childhood. As a teenager, he smoked weed and drank with his father, who liked to take his anger out on his son. One beating was so severe that several of Brogdon's ribs were broken. 
This is all I can find on his life before his crime, but it could be argued that it's all I really need to set the story up. On the night of October 7, 1981, 11-year-old Barbara Jo Brown was walking with her sister Rubeta to a convenience store in Luling, Louisiana, in order to use their phone. What a time to be alive. The 80s must have seriously sucked. Going to a gas station to use the phone? Good lord. While the girls were at the store, 19-year-old John Brogdon and his 17-year-old friend Bruce Parrott approached Barbara Jo. Rubeta was, of course, on the phone at this time. Parrott put his arm around Barbara Jo, and Rubeta called out for her so they could leave. On the way home, Barbara Jo asked if she could go visit a neighbor for a few minutes. Rubeta allowed her to go, and went to said neighbor's house about ten minutes later to collect her little sister. She was informed that Barbara Jo wasn't there. After a quick search of the neighborhood, Rubeta told her mother that Barbara Jo was missing and the police were called. Shortly after this, one of Barbara Joe's friends came forward and said that he had seen her sitting between two men in a car that same evening. These men were, you guessed it, John Brogdon and Bruce Parrott. Later on the same night, the young girl's body was found behind a levee in Luling. Parrott's car was found parked nearby. Witnesses would later come forward and tell police that they'd seen Brogdon and Parrott walking on a road near this levee. Brogdon was disheveled and shirtless at the time. The two men would be arrested at Brogdon's home later that night on suspicion of murder. They were read their Miranda rights at the sheriff's office, and Brogdon decided to waive his right to counsel. He confessed to raping and murdering Barbara Jo. After he and Parrott had lured her away from the convenience store, they drove her to the levee where she was later found. While here, both men repeatedly raped her and forced her to perform oral sex on them. During this vile attack, they were beating her with their fists. Glass bottles were also broken on the pavement so they could stab the young girl with the sharp edges. This apparently wasn't enough violence, as it was also found that Barbara Jo had been pierced throughout her body with pointed sticks. Her cause of death was ultimately head trauma from the men beating her with a brick. Brogdon and Parrott left the scene when they thought a car was approaching. Brogdon was convicted of first-degree murder and aggravated rape on February 4, 1982, and received a death sentence the same day. He argued in his first appeal that he had been drunk at the time of the crime and therefore shouldn't have been sentenced to death. He claimed that he and Parrott had each drank six beers before picking Barbara Jo up and that a blood alcohol test was not brought into court as evidence of this. Turns out, one was never done. The only time he gave a blood sample was to determine his blood type. So this whole charade was out the window. The psychologist testified during his trial that he had a borderline personality that could turn into a psychotic episode after even the smallest disappointment. This could also be affected by drinking alcohol. Another doctor also came to his defense with the same claim. Because of a personality disorder and mental retardation, Brogdon didn't function like other people when he was under the influence. This didn't win him any points in his appeal, so he also threw his attorneys under the bus and called them ineffective. Because his rough childhood wasn't brought up and his family members weren't called as witnesses, Brogdon claimed his lawyers didn't do enough for him. 
this didn't do him any favors either. He wasn't done yet, though. He claimed that Parrot being sentenced to life in prison instead of the death penalty was a mitigating factor in his own case. But what he didn't stop to think about was that Parrot was only 17 at the time of the murder. He was a minor. I know this was the 80s, but I don't believe minors could be executed at this time, even for murder. Parrot only got life because the jury deadlocked in the sentencing phase of his trial. Once again, no points for Brogdon. His sentence was upheld. One final appeal was filed for Brogdon on July 30th, 1987, literally hours before he was scheduled to be executed. Seven claims were raised in this appeal. Petitioner's death sentence violates the Constitution because one of the aggravating circumstances overlaps with the circumstance the state proved to establish his guilt of first-degree murder. I don't speak legalese, but I think what that's saying is that whatever aggravating circumstance they're talking about cancels out a mitigating circumstance? I don't know. If you're that curious, hire a lawyer. You guys don't pay me enough to translate this into English. Execution of mentally retarded prisoner would constitute cruel and unusual punishment. He committed a heinous act. Mental capacity doesn't have anything to do with that. I've known plenty of differently abled people who aren't violent child rapists. The admission of photographs at the sentencing hearing violated petitioner's right to a fair sentencing hearing. Is the jury not allowed to see what he did to that poor little girl? Like, what the fuck? The denial of petitioner's right to an evidentiary hearing on the issue of the state's suppression of favorable evidence violated due process. This was in reference to that blood alcohol test that never took place. They're really trying to run with it. Oh my god. The fucking run-on sentences are real in this. The trial court's ruling that testimony concerning the sentence received by petitioner's co-indictee was not relevant mitigating evidence violated the Eighth Amendment, basically trying to say that a death sentence was cruel and unusual because Parrot got a life sentence. Capital punishment is excessive. Beating an 11-year-old girl to death with a brick after raping her and stabbing her repeatedly seems excessive to me, but okay. Electrocution is a cruel and unusual means of punishment. Wow, something I can actually agree on. This is probably the worst way to die in modern times. Why they didn't just use a firing squad is beyond me. There's a whole court ruling on this that will bore you to death, so I'll just hit you with the conclusion. Stay of execution denied. John Brogdon was executed by electrocution on July 30th, 1987. During a hearing, he told the court that he didn't think he deserved clemency, but that he wanted to live. His lawyers wanted to postpone his execution so the Supreme Court could rule on whether a juvenile convicted of murder can be executed. Brogdon wasn't a juvenile. He was 19. But because of his mental impairments, they argued that he was still a child. Children don't do the kind of fucked up shit that this man did. The DA in this case said that, Though Mr. Brogdon might be somewhat mentally retarded, he knew right from wrong at the time of the murder and was mentally competent to stand trial. This is one of those hot-button issues that seems to pop up from time to time. But it leads me to ask the question again. If we can't execute the mentally ill, 
or mentally impaired. What the fuck are we supposed to do with them when they commit heinous acts? Asylums aren't a thing anymore, and prisons don't have the resources to take care of them, so what's the solution? Brogdon didn't have an official last statement, but as he sat himself in the electric chair, he said, God bless y'all. His last meal was crackling cornbread. Cracklin? Or crackling? I, I know that's a thing. A cheeseburger, some fries, and a Coca-Cola. I have to say, you Southerners make some damn fine last meal choices. I'd probably also go for something greasy and terrible if I was about to get in the chair. Have fun cleaning up that mess. So I wanted to include the story of Louisiana's only female death row inmate, and it turns out that her case is off the fucking rails. The crime itself, while obviously devastating, wasn't a gory one or one involving kids, but the twists and turns, goddamn. Antoinette Frank was born on April 30th, 1971, in Opelousas, Louisiana. I hope I got that right. That's a pretty tame one compared to some other Louisiana towns. She had a pretty unstable childhood, but always knew what she wanted to do with her life. She wanted to be a police officer. Or a police, as I like to call them. Makes my daughter laugh every time. Frank's brother was a criminal. Her father was in and out of her life. And she also claimed that her father had abused her in every way possible. She'd seek psychiatric help for these issues later in life. When she applied to be a cop in Louisiana, she lied about her mental state. Believe it or not, they caught her lying on her application and hired her anyway. She was a cop for less than a year. While on the scene of a shooting, Frank met a man named Roger Lacaz. I tried. There's an S in there. Is it silent? I don't know. Rogers? Roger? I, I don't know. Lacaz had been severely injured in the shooting and needed Frank's help in addition to medical attention. But this man wasn't just a civilian caught in some kind of crossfire. He was an alleged drug dealer. Frank fell madly in love with him, giving him whatever he wanted. She even let him drive her police car and at one point claimed he was a trainee while on call. I should probably mention that Lacaz was only 19. On March 4, 1995, the couple visited a Vietnamese restaurant in East New Orleans called Kim An. Frank had worked security for them and knew the family who owned the restaurant pretty well. Chow Vu, an employee, went into the kitchen to count the money after the restaurant closed. A little while later, she came back out and paid Officer Ronald Williams II for his services as a security guard. It was at this time she realized Frank was approaching the restaurant. Probably wouldn't seem out of the ordinary had it not been for Frank and Lacaz already coming to the restaurant twice that evening to get leftover food. The second time Chow let the couple outside to go home, Chow couldn't find the key to the front door. This third time, Chow knew something was up and went to go hide the money in the microwave. Frank unlocked the door to the restaurant with the key she'd stolen and pushed past Officer Williams before pushing Chow, her brother, and another employee into the kitchen. Officer Williams asked what the problem was and then gunshots rang out. Frank turned back into the dining room and Chow grabbed her brother so they could go hide. 
Lacaz had remained out in the dining room during the altercation and was standing behind Officer Williams. Lacaz shot him in the back of the neck, which paralyzed him instantly. While he was on the ground, he was shot again. Once in the head and once in the back. Chow and her brother Kwok and the other employee had gone into a walk-in cooler to hide. Chow's brother Kwong and sister Ha had been sweeping the dining room when this whole thing began, and it was unclear where they went after the shots were fired. They were able to see part of the kitchen from the cooler and noticed Frank looking for something. As she moved out of their line of sight, more shots were fired. Frank and Lacaz were yelling about the money, but Chow's siblings hadn't seen where she'd hidden it. Ha, just 21 at the time, was shot three times while she pled for her life. Kwong was pistol whipped and shot six times. He was only 17. Can you fucking imagine working in your family's restaurant and being gunned down because you don't know where the money is? God damn. Frank dropped Lacaz off at an apartment complex near the restaurant before the call came through on her police radio that there was an officer down at the Kim On restaurant. Frank went back to the scene and parked her car in the back before entering through the back door. Chow, obviously terrified, ran out the front to the safety of the other officers. Frank identified herself as a cop and Chow called her out for what she had done. She told the other cops that Frank was the one who had done it. I guess the accusations of a terrified Vietnamese woman weren't enough to convince the officers though. Chow and Frank were questioned at different tables in the restaurant and Frank was eventually taken to police headquarters where she confessed. Lacaz was also arrested and both were charged with first degree murder. Lacaz was tried first and found guilty. He got a death sentence. Frank was tried a little less than two months later. The amount of evidence against her was so great that her lawyers didn't even try to defend her. They'd called 40 witnesses, but still couldn't mount a defense. She was found guilty on September 12, 1995, and given a death sentence. Roger Lacaz was resentenced to life without parole in 2019. Not sure exactly what the fuck Louisiana was doing at that point in time. He killed a cop. That, uh usually earns someone the needle. One of the last states I looked at had a majority of cop killers on death row. But not this time, I guess. Antoinette Renee Frank still sits on death row in Louisiana. She was originally scheduled to be executed on July 15, 2008, but was issued a 90-day stay. The day that this was to end, a new death warrant was signed and the execution date was set to December 8th. Her lawyers argued that they didn't have enough time to go over the mountain of evidence before the appeal deadlines ran out, and the Louisiana Supreme Court voided her death warrant. The judge who had signed both of her death warrants was removed from the case in 2010 due to a shocking revelation that he himself was tied to the gun used in the murders. That's the most recent thing I can find on Antoinette Frank. This case is all over the fucking place. Here we have a black woman who was formerly a cop that fell in love with a drug dealer who murdered two innocent Vietnamese people during the robbery of a restaurant that she was familiar with. Like, what the actual fuck is going on here? I don't know. Louisiana seems like a fun place.
I think I've had enough Cajun seasoning for one episode. Despite all the fucked up shit that goes on down here, Southerners are my people. Maybe one of these days I'll make my way back to the Mardi Gras state and check out their food, for real. I've never actually had Cajun food. If you enjoyed this episode, please, for the love of whatever god you believe in, tell a friend. Share it on your social media. Help me get a following so that maybe one day you'll pay me enough to translate legalese. I'm available on Rumble, Odyssey, and most podcast apps. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. And as of the recording of this episode, I also have two Rumble-exclusive videos for you to watch. One's about nitrogen hypoxia, and one is some death penalty news from this week. Of course, this week is not going to be this week when you hear this episode, but it's still interesting. I was going to try to close this one out with some lyrics from the only French band I know, but I can't figure out how to not pronounce half of every word, so you get the usual one this time. My lord, this muggy November weather gives me the horribles. Sorry, couldn't help myself. I held back through that whole episode, but I had to give in. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.